Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. Anyway, I want to start with a, with a story this morning. And on Reformation Sunday, I want to talk about the Catholics. Some of you are, oh my gosh, what's he going to do? No, it's cool. It's cool. But I'd like to tell you a Catholic story. And so a couple years ago, it's actually been more than a couple years now, the longer I think about it, um, I had an opportunity to go to Minnesota to a writing workshop. Um, I was invited as part of a group of, group of aspiring writers to come up and to do some work with somebody who was a kind of a hero of mine and met some wonderful friends. And they said, you're going to come up. It's called the Collegeville Institute. It's in Collegeville, Minnesota. And up there, there is a college and there is a monastery. And if you know me, college, monastery, both of those things in the same spot, I'm all in. All right, I don't care what we're going to do, I am all in. So I get on the plane, I go up there for a couple days, and one of the first things they say is, you're, if, if you would like, you're welcome to join the monks for prayer for morning and evening. I'm like, oh, I am, I am absolutely praying with the monks. So I got a chance to do that while I'm working on my writing. And then they said, would you like a tour of the monastery? Like, are you kidding me? Like, of course, let's go. And so, so they start taking us around, and they show us the quarters, and, you know, and, and all this sort of stuff. And there was so many, like, super wonderful Catholic things there. There are like some of the baptismal fonts, if you know what I'm talking about, they were there. You know, some of the altars were beautiful. Um, you know, there were, there were relics. This is a monastery. So relics of, you know, saints, and it's the College of St. Benedict. So there were some Benedictine relics there that, I mean, were just were meaningful to me and really, really fun to experience. And then they were like, you want to go in the basement? I'm like, oh, we going in the basement of a Catholic monastery? Let's go. This is the same guy who on our honeymoon was jumping over fences, all right, to go into the ruins of churches. Yes, we going into the basement. And so we go down there, and they start showing us this room, and I captured a tiny little corner of this room on this picture that you can see up here. This is one portion of this whole basement it must have been 20 to 30, to my, my recollection, 20 or 30 altars set up. And I said, what in the world is this? Like, it looked like when you go to a carnival and like the mirrors, you know, the, the repeating mirrors, it was just like altar upon altar upon altar, like going all the way down. I'm like, what in the world's going on? They said, well, this is where the brothers would come down and they would say mass every day, multiple times a day for the various intentions, whether it was a personal intention or, you know, or just praying for the world. They would come down here and just there was always mass being offered on one of these altars. For me, I was like, that is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Men who dedicate their life to interceding for the life of the world, I was so moved by this. A whole life dedicated to the service of God and others and the world. And it reminded me, and I've quoted in my sermon a million times, that this mindset that if the monks stopped praying, the world would stop turning. You could feel this in the basement. But they're like, nah, bro, we don't do that anymore. I'm like, why? Why? Well, they said, well, this is a pre-Vatican II world. And I was naive and ignorant at the time. I didn't quite know what that meant. But they said, this was all built just before Vatican II. And Vatican II happened and we stopped doing that. And so I had to go figure out what Vatican II was all about. 
And if you don't know what Vatican II is, it was a, it was a huge ecumenical, ecumenical council in the Catholic Church that started, sort of the work for it started in the 40s and 50s, and it kicked off in the early 60s. And the Pope at the time and the church at the time discovered that there was a malaise over the church. I mean, think about the timeline that I just laid out in the 40s and the 50s. The world has just endured not one, but two world wars. The entire world is in upheaval. Western Europe is just gutted with these trenches, not to mention the Holocaust and what happened in the Pacific. I mean, all over the place, just dead bodies everywhere in a century that had kicked off as the idea of we can build utopia. And that, was put to, that, that dream was put to rest very, very early. And the church at the time, the Catholic church at the time, was defined more by power, i.e. the pope, and structures i.e. their law, canon law. And so the Pope at the time said, you know what, this is a time for spiritual renewal in the aftermath of so much death and so much suffering. And so Vatican II came out with some things over the course of the years that we're still living with today. They said, they described the church not in old, sort of rigid, dogmatic, organizational language, but rather said, no, we're going to set all that aside and say, hey guys, we have this new idea. The church it's the people of God. It's a, it's a family. And everybody's like, yeah, we know. <laughs> We're glad you've caught up. There was a movement to open up the scriptures again to the laity and say, hey, you know what? Biblical studies are actually really important for the average person. This was the time, maybe this is the most famous thing for many of you, this is the time when the mass moved from being said in Latin to being said in the vernacular, the language of the people. And that remains, you know, a huge, huge deal even today. And as I was reading about Vatican II, I stumbled across this article. I just want to quote it so there's, there's a little clarity for you. It said, before the council, some Catholics viewed the priest as the holy one, while the laity lived a more mundane and common experience. He said, the priests are the holy ones. The priests are the ones who do the holy work. The rest of us are just trying to get to heaven. And the council wrote these words. It says, thus it is evident to everyone that all the faithful of Christ, of whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity or love. By this holiness, as such, a more human manner of living is promoted in this earthly society. It's like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, you know what this is? Breaking out of old ways of church, renewed interest in the scriptures, relocating the faith of believers in the, heart, in the hearts of believers and not clergy. You know what that sounds like? That's Martin Luther. Vatican II was a reformation. A complicated one, one whose legacy we're still living with today. And that, it, it, there's a lot more going on in Vatican II than that. But as I heard it, I'm like, my goodness. It was a reformation. And I learned that Reformation is not limited to the 1500s, and it's not limited to Protestants. Reformation is required anytime faith becomes someone else's responsibility. Let me say it again. Reformation is required anytime faith becomes someone else's responsibility. And that's what I learned in that basement of that monastery, that there was a sense that it was the brother's job to hold faith. It was their job to pray while the rest of us tried to get along. And Vatican II said, nah, we're stepping away from that, which is why that basement sat empty for 50, 60 years. But let me ask that question. 
who do we ask to take responsibility for faith? Like maybe you're like, no, no, we don't do that. Like everybody's got their own faith. But no, I think we do. We often ask other people and other things to carry faith for us. We ask the church to do that for us, do we not? Some of us are just like, look, church, just tell me what to do. What do I have to do? And that, and that is true for all kinds of different churches, whether we locate the thing to do in baptism or communion or confession or membership or even a sinner's prayer. We ask the church, tell us what hoops to jump through, and we believe that's faith, and we ask the church to just kind of hold that while we go about our lives. As long as church is happening, doesn't matter if I'm a part of it or not, as long as somebody's doing faith and I'm, I'm connected to that in some way, I'll be fine. We ask church to carry faith for us. Some of us ask other people to carry faith for us. And I've known some, like some of us, it's family members, right? Like some of us are like, look, grandma goes to church. She prays for me. She keeps the church membership. And if I need anything, I call grandma and grandma calls the church, you know, and I can do my wedding there, you know, or I can have my kid baptized or whatever. You understand how exactly that, like that is to brothers praying at an altar while we go about our existence. We do this. And I don't mean to shame anybody, just to say that these are patterns in the human heart. Sometimes we ask celebrities or influencers, whatever shows up on our social media, that's what I believe, hit share. And we ask celebrities or, or influencers to kind of, and today we even ask politicians to carry our faith for us. Whatever they say, go. And every time the church has faltered or struggled or lost sight of what it is we are called to do, it's because we believe Christ was someone else's responsibility or that our faith could be carried by someone else. We say, those people need to grow, but not me. Kids need to learn this, but not me. We say, the old people need to say the prayers, not me. We say the people with open calendars, they're the ones who will come, but not me. The people who are the religious fanatics, they'll show up, but not me. And then we wonder where the power of God is in our lives. Where is God? We wonder why the church is in the shape that it's in. Anytime we put something at the center of faith that isn't Christ in our own hearts, anytime we put the work of God somewhere else other than me, we are in need of reformation. Why? Because you're wrong or I'm wrong or, or you know, the church, whatever church we're a part of is wrong? No. No, we don't start with us. We start with God. God is not a second-hand God. God is not a second-hand God. The God we proclaim, we say God is love. God is love expressed in proximity to you and to me. Fly through this quickly, and you're all going to have to do your own research to tell if I'm telling you the truth or not. But think about it. In Genesis, God builds a human and then breathes into each of us the very breath of life, God's own spirit inside of us. God comes calling personally to Abraham, to Moses, to David. Every one of them has a personal experience of God that calls them into a life of service. One of my favorite stories in the scripture is Jacob. Jacob has just stolen his brother's, his brother's uh, inheritance. We'll leave that to the side for a second. So he's on the run, but he's supposed to be the one who is carrying on the legacy of God's people. And he's in the middle of nowhere, and he lays down. He puts his head on a rock just to take a nap. And, in the, and 
and in this nap, he has this dream of a ladder. Maybe this is Jacob's ladder, and the angels are going up and coming down and going up and coming down, and he gets this vision of what God is going to do with him. And he wakes up, and and he hears God saying that, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Not, I am kind of present, but I am with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go. And Jacob wakes up and says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I was unaware of how close God is to me. God is always present and near. Ours is an intensely personal God. But there's this tendency in the human heart, ancient hearts, Reformation hearts, and modern hearts, that seeks to put distance for whatever reason between us and God. It seems to be our normal mode of existence. Anytime we get closer to God, we want to put distance between us and God. Sometimes a story like Jonah. God put a calling on his life and Jonah's like, I don't think so. God's called me that direction. He literally went in the other direction. We're scared to death of what God might ask us to do. Sometimes it's like the Israelites. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law, and they get antsy and say, well, Moses hadn't come back. How about, and since we can't see God, how about we make one that we can see, hence the golden calf. Let's distance ourselves from God as God has proclaimed himself. For some of us, we carry shame or we carry concern in our own hearts, and we use that shame as a way to distance ourselves from God. I mean, how many of you have heard somebody say, you know, well, if I came to church, the roof would fall in. I bet you 99 times out of 100, there's something going on in somebody's heart, and they're scared to death to bring that to God. I've been preaching a long time. No roof has ever fallen in, not while anybody was in it. It's all part of this singular human desire to hide. And if you doubt this, what did Adam and Eve do after they sinned? They cover themselves up and they hid from God. This is what we do. This is who we are. And so if we can hand off a faith to someone else, it puts this distance between us and God. And it makes it a lot more certain, right? Because we find holy people or holy things and we're like, well, the holiness is over there and therefore I don't have to deal with it. And so we hide it in someone else. So we don't have to deal with our shame. So we don't have to deal with what God might call us to do. And God's abundant. But as we do that, as we continue to distance ourselves from God, what we discover is that slowly and surely our vision of the abundant life that God has for us no longer seems possible. And the longer we walk away from God, that we start wondering, where did God go? And God's going, what are you talking about? I'm right here. God is in this place. You just don't know it. We start to say, well, faith is for holy people, not for me. That's a kind, if I can use the biblical image, that's a kind of exile. In so many ways, God doesn't send us into exile. God doesn't send us away. We choose exile. And this is what happens in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, the people of Israel had this long history of putting distance between themselves and God. They're like, well, we've got a priesthood. Now we've got a king. Now it's just in the temple. Now God doesn't even care about all of that. God just wants to make sure he gets his money. And so slowly and surely, the people of Israel keep walking away from God. And God, if you read the Old Testament account, seems to be getting a little miffed about it. Like, our God is a uniquely emotional God. And God said some things that are uniquely emotional. And if we read them from a position of power, they sound really awful. 
people, if we read them from a place of love, they make all the sense in the world. God is like, why are you abandoning me? But ultimately, they do. And they're taken into exile. Their nation is conquered. And now they are a nobody in a nowhere. But God didn't wholly abandon them, as God never wholly abandons us. God sent them prophets. Jeremiah, Elijah, Habakkuk, Amos, Obadiah, and this big one, Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, as they're all looking around going, what just happened to us? Ezekiel comes out to them, and God, Ezekiel has a message for the people. God is very personal. God says through Ezekiel, the children also rebelled against me. They neither followed my statutes nor kept my laws for living upright and well. They desecrated my Sabbaths. I seriously considered, this is the word of God, I seriously considered dumping my anger on them, but then I thought better of it. How wonderful that sometimes God thinks better of it. And then God says through Ezekiel, he says, for all that, for all the walking away, for all the distance you want to put between me and you, God says, I'll pour pure water over you and scrub you clean. I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the stone heart from your body and replace it with a heart that is God-willed, not self-willed. You'll be my people and I will be your God. Whatever is causing that distance between you and God, whatever, whatever it is that is driving this wedge, God is seeking to close that gap. I need you to hear that good news today. God is seeking to close that gap in your life. God is seeking to, I'm going to use this word, reform you, wash you clean, give you a new heart, put God's spirit in you so that you can live a life of purpose that God intends for you. God wants to locate his glorious presence in the world, his wonder, his power, his beauty, and his power to change inside of you. You are made for this. And if you doubt me, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus and his boys are just walking along. Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And you know this story. I'm sure I picked this reading like four times a year, so forgive me. But it's such, a, it's such an important one. And they say, well, you're, some people say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're another prophet kind of thing. Which puts a little distance between God and Jesus, right? But then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What he's saying is, there is no gap between Jesus, you, and God. You are the Christ. And let me tell you, what Peter understood and what we must understand as well is that the biggest reformation of all didn't happen in Germany. I know we've got a lot of German ancestry. We're very proud of that. But the biggest reformation was not German, and it was not English, and it was not Swiss, the biggest reformation of all time was in a sleepy Middle Eastern town when a baby was born to a couple named Mary and Joseph and was announced as Emmanuel, God with us. And here Peter gets it with clarity for the first time. And Jesus says, on this I will build my church. On a confession of faith in a man's heart, a man's reformed and renewed heart, I will build a church. And it was that faith 
that caused Peter, who had his own moment of distance from Christ, right? He had an intense moment of shame when he denied Jesus at the cross. So it's not that Peter doesn't have these moments, these gaps. We all have them. But it was that faith that caused Peter after Jesus had risen from the dead, to have his life changed so that he was preaching. He was imprisoned. They let him out, said, don't say this name again. And you know what he did? He walked out the next day and started preaching again. And he was flogged. And remember, flogging is not bad, Peter. Flogging is rip open your back so that every time you take off your shirt, the scars of Christ are right there. And he got right back out and he did it again. His life was changed. Because a normal guy's heart had been changed forever. And he spent the rest of his life living in that power. Christ's presence in him. And so it is today. I've been doing parish ministry 16 plus years. Watching people wonder whether God loves them. Wondering if they're good enough. Wondering if if God has abandoned them. Or if God has just left them to the side. Like the story of the Good Samaritan. God has just walked by on the other side and gone around. I've watched person after person after person struggle with this. And it's no different than in the time of Luther. In the time of Luther, people were asking the same thing. Like, does God care? And I'm tired of watching people have a secondhand relationship with Christ and live in a fog of confusion and doubt and uncertainty about whether God is near to them and loves them. And that's why I believe in a Reformation still. Reformation's never really been about theology and church structures and denominations. The idea of, you know, saying, well, thank God I'm not those people. Reformation has always been about the hearts of believers being called back to life in Christ. A life of faith that becomes our responsibility, not because we're working our way to heaven. It becomes our responsibility because God is changing us from the inside out. It's in Christ's cross that we have been set free. And is that not what we just sang? The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. And I believe we need a reformation now. Just like pre-Vatican II, I wonder if we, even in Protestant churches, have gotten comfortable allowing other folks to carry faith. But I believe church can't, doesn't have to be the place where we just, people just kind of dump their faith baggage on us and we hold it. I believe actually church can be the expression of God's changing us from the inside out for all of us. It can change our lives and then we come together. We come together to celebrate that in Christ's cross we are made new creation. That's what worship is all about. We come together and we learn how to walk more faithfully to, together. That's what discipleship is all about. And we invite others to close that gap in their life and to know God loves them more than they had any idea. And we call that evangelism. That's all it is. That's good news of great joy for all people. And so I want to challenge you all, not with my words, but the words of a prayer that we prayed today. It's actually an Episcopalian prayer, but we're working everybody in today. This prayer of the day with the gospel, that God is closing that gap and God is doing something great in your heart. What should we do, Reverend? Well, it's right here in the prayer. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. Folks, put one foot in front of the other and wait for God to close the gap in your life.